at Shopify, Shopify is big. It's like almost 15,000 people, uh, half of which is support. A third of the total organization is almost engineers. So you're talking about thousands of engineers. It's not as big as Microsoft, but it's also not a small, medium size or large organization. It's, it's huge. So there are some rules in place about tech stack. So everything is, almost everything should be run with Ruby on Rails and MySQL. That's your, let's say, green path. For APIs, uh, you develop APIs using GraphQL, uh, and that should cover most of the cases that you need. Now, your cases might might be, let's say, special. You might need a bit of a performance kick. Uh, Shopify's, uh, let's say, systems programming language was for a long time Golang, and only in the last few months, it changed to Rust. Ahmed, I'm super excited to have you with me today. Uh, I'm really excited for our conversation. Uh, one of your latest roles was a staff uh, software engineer at Shopify. You've been exposed to a lot of interesting problems. Uh, and I'm really excited to dive deep and for us to start discussing and dissecting whatever we can about distributed systems. I think we both work in this area a little bit. Uh, we both have seen uh, quite a bit. We have worse, what do you call them, battle scars maybe. And uh, we have uh, learned a, a thing or two, let's say, about managing some of these systems in production. Um, so let's start by you telling us a little bit about, about your background. You know, How did you end up at Shopify? Um, what was your career like shortly as a software engineer? Cool, yeah. Super excited to be here and talk to you, by the way. I've been following you on Twitter and social media lately. Um, thanks for the invitation. Um, so my, my career so far, um, very, very traditional computer science background back in Jordan, then worked with a few startups, decided um, I want to travel abroad. So I, I went to Greece. I sold my soul to the devil for three years. I worked at an oil and gas corporation, very well known in the, in the Arab world, Triple C. Did everything from like cabling, switching, networking, uh, software development. Uh, learning against deadlines, how to how to be a mobile developer, not liking it, going back to web. Then I decided I want to go back to product, so I moved to Germany, uh, joined a cool startup called Trust You. Uh, this is the brand, um, and uh, yeah, at Trust You did different things, uh, front end, back end, data engineering, um, and from there I just like uh, started exploring leadership positions in different. Uh, with different companies, tried consulting for a year. I learned a lot, didn't like it. I, I realized I don't like technical pre-sales that much. Went back to product and I, I thought that at some point my career was going into engineering management. So I pursued be, being an engineering manager for the better part of two years. Uh, learned a lot, went out of my comfort zone, but also missed being a builder. And I liked that technical leadership aspect of working with other people. And that's how I became um, a staff developer at Shopify. I applied for it, uh, went through a rigorous interviewing process, and then I was offered the job and I've been doing it for uh, since January-ish 2022. Yeah, almost two years. Amazing. Um, that's quite a diverse background, right? And it's sort of similar to mine. And my question, which I think a lot of people ask often is, did, did, did you feel ever that you were sort of, you lost your way 
by doing all sorts of different things? Or do you feel that all of these things enriched your experience and allowed you to be much more engaged and much more productive and efficient as a software engineer? Um, definitely the latter. Like I think uh, we're talking to different people before and different friends, they always criticized me trying out different things. It's like, oh, why, why leave the startup world um, in Jordan and going for an oil and gas corporate? But I learned a lot about networking, for example, and switching, uh, very low level stuff. Um, I didn't do much software development a lot in, in these three years. It did some, but uh, it definitely enriched and opened my horizon like about what I would like to, to do and what I don't want to do, let's say, uh, which I would have regretted or I wouldn't have known that I don't like doing, let's say, networking all day long or like clipping cables and hooking them up with a main switch. Uh, it definitely enriched my experience, especially when I went into engineering management. Um, one thing I tell people is I recommend people to, go, to try out engineering management, any engineer to try out engineering management for a couple of years. It will, it, if for anything, it will make you more manageable as, a, as an engineer. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Why do, you, why do you think this is? Can you expand a little bit on that one? Yeah, definitely. So I think um, at least for now in, in our industry, engineering management is going into the direction of, uh, it's focusing a lot on people. Like, you know, the, the staff developer role is becoming more household in different companies. If you don't have a staff role, officially you have a tech lead. So like technical leadership is slowly getting switched into this parallel track of technical leadership. So engineering management is becoming more about people, facilitating decision-making, um, conflict resolution uh, in different ways. Conflict like does not have to be like a fight between different people on the team, but it could be conflicting priorities and how to really manage resourcing and budgeting. So uh, as an engineer, you're, like you're expected to focus on the task at hand, the problem, arriving at the best solution given the constraints you have. But an engineering manager is like is worrying about the the entire system of people working on this problem. Like, uh, who are the different people? Are the are the right people assigned on this project? Are they given the the good chance to grow? Let's say the the appropriate one to grow. The opportunities, yeah. So it definitely broadens your perspective on, you know, it's not just about me. It's about all these different people in the team and how my way of working is affecting other people, and how can I help my manager? so that we can grow people on the team in a better way, which most of the times just mean um, you, you're, you're giving this really cool project to somebody else on your team and like shadowing them as they try to make good decisions and allowing them to make mistakes sometimes if they're easy to recover from. So I think this whole perspective, which does not have to do with code and systems, debugging incidents, um, you, you have to learn as an engineering manager. Like you have a choice to learn as an engineer, but you can't you can't dodge that bullet, if you, as sort of speak, as an engineering manager. This is what I keep telling all of the engineers all the time, but nobody wants to listen because this is what you just mentioned is the hard part of our work as you grow in seniority. You cannot even grow in seniority unless you learn these things. You can all, you can learn as many uh, you know solutions out there about how to do data, data streaming. Uh, about distributed systems, about database sharding, replication, all of that stuff, but that's not gonna let you be or get to that next level. And even when you get when you when you we recruit for big tech, for example, 
this knowledge of these systems, they, they only look for certain things or a certain level of depth, but they don't expect you to literally know everything about you know, distributors and come fully prepared because they know you're going to be learning all of this stuff on the job. But what's more important, especially at staff plus levels, is how do you deal with complexity? How do you deal with others? How do you optimize for building these systems for them to perform well? How do you work with others so that they can perform at their best ability as well? Um, a big part of my job also is personally is to also help enable the rest of the team, make them more efficient, more productive. You might say this is the manager's job. Yes and no. I look at the staff plus engineer as a counterpart for a people manager, right? The, 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 a partner. Uh, my relationship with my manager right now is, is for more of a partnership than anything else. Uh, we talk about together how we can make the team better, more performant, so on and so forth. Yeah. I think. 100%. I think like uh, if you ask like what kind of activities have to happen in a team for it to be successful, like you have to care about, let's say, the people and how the people work, which are processes, then the projects they work on, then ultimately technology, right? And strategy moving forward. So I think the staff engineer, as you said, and the engineering manager, like they care about the same things, but from but with different priorities. So I would expect the engineering manager, at least at this stage of my career, I don't know everything, is that the engineering manager would know, would care a lot about people, processes, projects, and tech in that order. And the staff engineer would, wor would worry about, or let's say care more about, tech, then projects, then processes, then people. But they still care about the same things. Love it. That's a nice way of putting it. All right, let's switch gears a little bit because we're going to come back to this and talk about it more in depth. But I want to talk about some of the interesting problems you tackled uh, while working maybe at Shopify or while dealing with uh, systems at scale. Is there something that just comes jumps to mind right away? Uh, something that you can you know uh, talk a little bit more about and expand on? Uh, an interesting problem you solved, an interesting challenge that can give us a new perspective into dealing with these types of uh, systems. Yeah, uh, like so many things come to my mind, like <laughs> very open-ended questions. So maybe one. we can, yeah. So uh, most recently at Shopify, I was working on a problem called eligibility, like merchant eligibility. So at Shopify, I, um, I work as part of the shop marketplace Shop is a mobile app built by Shopify on Android and iOS, and it's like eBay, Etsy, and Amazon. All the merchants, the 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 kick or like uh, what's special about it is that all the merchants on Shop are Shopify merchants. So if you open a store, you'll be on the marketplace if you go through a sign-up process. And the problem is like, how do you decide which merchants should be on the app and which merchants shouldn't be on the app? Like from a from an eligibility perspective, right? Uh, and this is like the, I think the age old question of quality, like how do you ensure what is a good, what's a good player in a marketplace, right? Like well, how do you define good behavior? Like you can talk about fraud, right? Like uh, not fulfilling orders would be fraudulent. Like you're, you're getting orders from people, but you're not fulfilling them or you're charging people, but you're not sending them orders. These problems are easier to solve at Shopify scale because it's been in e-commerce for a long time. But when you open a marketplace, it's different. And the nature of the problem was tricky is because Shopify always cared about merchants and not buyers because it's a, an e-commerce platform. But Shop, we own the buyer experience. So we're responsible for people now, the buyers, not just the, the merchants. 
So we we've been we've been trying to come up with a list of uh, like a checklist to what would be a good merchant behavior. And uh, historically speaking, this has evolved to be uh, about search, about discovery of products. So everything is phrased within like, oh, do you want to be on the shop app? Oh, you can. Okay, sure. So now that you're on the shop app, please enable this payment gateway, Shopify payments, whatever. Like two or three steps and that's it. Uh, But as the marketplace evolved and it grew and then COVID hit and people started selling masks and then you had these regional, let's say, regulations, it's, it's allowed to sell masks in some parts of the world, but it's not allowed to sell masks in Europe. So how do you, how do you deal with all of this different regulations in different geographical regions, but while at the same time building a single system that can cater for all of these people? And how did you, how did you, how would you approach a problem like that? Like, I love that you described it from a, that's the business problem, right? We have a business, we are, we have a problem we need to tackle. And, and that's honestly the, the, what we will be tackling as staff plus engineers. People think that, oh, we're going to get a requirements list from a product manager. Wrong. That's not how it works. (laughs) Um, Working with a product manager, for example, or a product owner or whatever it is, the product owner understands the business problem more than anyone else, supposedly. They care about how the business is going to perform in the future. Uh, What are some of the business challenges we're going to be tackling in the future? They might have some insight into the technicality of it, which is great to understand the boundaries and the framing of the problem. But this is where we come in as staff plus engineers in the design process of the solution. So what I'm really curious about is, how would you tackle such a thing? Is it more of a role-based solution, for example? Or do you create a policy management system? Or, uh, you know, do you is there some any some other interesting way? Does machine learning come into play? I'm pretty sure here's some data, machine learning, behavioral analysis come, comes into play. So how do you how do you come up with the solution, and how do you zoom in to make that solution dissectable enough so that engineering teams can actually start pick, picking things up and working with them? That's that's a great question because it's it's exactly what what the role is about, right? Like you're given a problem by leadership and you're saying, and they say, we don't know how to solve it, go figure it out. And you say, I don't know how to solve it, but I'll try to figure it out, <laughs> essentially. So the, 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 problem, the problem predated me joining Shopify and Shop. So there was a little bit of a solution, but it was not really hassle-free. It was a, a batch processing pipeline written on Apache Spark and Python. It runs once a day. And it takes up to 48 hours to decide if a merchant is eligible or not. Now, that's a problem. It's a problem because if you're a bad actor, you have two free days to do bad things on the marketplace. Or if you're a good actor, it will take us two days to put you on the marketplace. You could be frustrated. And as a business owner, a store owner, you could say, I don't want this. I'll just go with a competitor. So like the, 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 the true positives and the true negatives are are bad for business in this case. So what we try to do is, like, first of all, map the system. When I joined, the people who built that system have moved on to different teams. So there was like a lot of tribal knowledge hidden in code, reverse engineer it. Oh, the worst, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then it took us three months to reverse engineer the systems. And then we said the following. We said the, the problem with the current state of eligibility is that there are too many rules. Like we need to simplify them. So like... Uh, and and the rules are online. We can talk about them. They're on the help center. 
it's like you have to enable a payment gateway. You have to enable uh, a payment wallet. You have to, uh, you, your store should not be password protected. Uh, people should access, it should, it should be accessible. You should not be selling these prohibited products and so on and so forth. And as a merchant, you go through a huge checklist and then later on to discover an edge case. So we started simplifying them. So one way we simplified it is we said, like, do we really have to make merchants wait 90 days by charging cl clients on their Shopify store before they actually get on the marketplace? Do we have to do that? That was like a rule decided on a long time ago. And the reason, and then it's like you have, it's like uh, Chesterton, I forgot the name, Chesterton's fence, I think. It's like if, uh, if you find a fence somewhere, like as a barrier between a, a property or a land, you, should, you could say like, oh, is, is this... Is this needed? Like, I could just remove it. I could just remove this fence and it won't change anything because it's empty land. I'm pro probably butchering the mental model here, but we can link to it. And it's like, you, you, ask, you ask yourself, like, if I remove this rule, what would it break, right? And then what we discovered through reverse engineering through the org is that, oh, it was just a proxy for people to know that, yeah, as a merchant, you start, you charge people once and we have to wait 90 days to make sure you're a, you're a good actor. But that didn't that didn't actually prevent people from being bad actors. Like you could start a Shopify store now. I'm probably giving people bad ideas, but like, uh, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't <laughs> yeah, dive yeah. into that. Yeah, like, but you, you, could, you could game the system, like any system yeah. is gameable, right? Absolutely. So it's like, so what that role is doing is uh, it's making good people frustrated or good actors frustrated on the marketplace. So we removed it. We went back to uh, the payment payment transactions. Uh, we we removed a lot of a lot of rules about enabling and disabling payment transactions. We just check when when you sign up if you enable the wallet or not, and like two or three other other rules. So laws. So what we what we started doing is probably like um, a poor man's domain driven design of some sort, like uh, against the deadline. I guess <laughs> it's like here are all the rules. What is the mental model? What are you trying to model with this? And what you're trying to model is something really incoherent and inconsistent. We removed all the rules and we just came up with one definition. Eligibility is when the business says you can sell on the marketplace. Remove this bad actor, good actor thing. Uh, and opt-in is when you say, I want to I wanna sell. So you're on the app if you say, I want to sell and I'm eligible. And you're eligible if your chargeback rate is less than 1% and you have a payment transaction. Uh, like a payment gateway and that's it we went from 10 12 rules down to two three that you can check out you can that's like a checkbox that you can check off in your first yeah yeah, yeah that you can take in your first let's say a few hours of enabling the marketplace amazing tell me a little bit more about some of the landscape that you were dealing with uh your your, were you dealing with a service-oriented architecture? Was it more microservices? And again, I know that some of these details cannot be made public, but as, as much as we can talk about this. Um, or was there a consistency in the technology stack? Because one of the biggest misconceptions that people have about a lot of the different companies that work in tech is that uh, some of the popular ones have a, a unified tech stack, everything is figured out, everything is consistent, so on and so forth. But that's really rarely the case. Uh, different groups, different teams, different organizations, they use different programming languages, different uh, frameworks, maybe even maybe even in-house, in uh, sorry, uh, frameworks that were built in-house uh, to solve different types of problems. Can you talk a little bit more about the consistency of the landscape? Yeah. Um, 
that's cool. And I think it also touches on the previous problem and how we solved it. So at Shopify, Shopify is big. It's like almost 15,000 people, uh, half of which is support. A third of the total organization is almost engineers. So you're talking about thousands of engineers. It's not as big as Microsoft, but it's also not a small, medium-sized or large organization. It's, it's huge. So there are some rules in place about tech stack. So everything is, almost everything should be run with Ruby on Rails and MySQL. That's your, let's say, green path. Uh, for APIs, uh, you develop APIs using GraphQL. Uh, and that should cover most of the cases that you need. Now, your cases might, might be, let's say, special. You might need a bit of a performance kick. Uh, Shopify's, uh, let's say, systems programming language was for a long time Golang, and only in the last few months it changed to Rust. Uh, oh, that's was, a, that's an interesting uh, topic to dig into. That, okay, that's an on. interesting segue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, for for like so, uh, so is it microservices? Not really. There are some repos that are small enough to qualify as a microservice. But because, like you might know already from the Ruby on Rails community, you don't just uh, decompose monoliths; you just get used to them. So you start like a, a service, and it and it just grows. So my organization, the Shop Marketplace, is a is one big monolith. Shopify Core, when when you go like sign up on Shopify and stuff, you're on store. Uh, that's a big monolith, and there are like a few other ones. So the core core Shopify business is spread around like let's say five to six monoliths uh, of some sort. So how do these services and APIs communicate through APIs and with with their tech stack of like circuit breaking and SDKs? Uh, but the most the more common one is actually message passing over Kafka. So Shopify runs a lot of Kafka clusters regionally within Europe and the US, and uh, it's just a, a very ubiquitous thing. To you know, if you have an API or a system, you start a topic. You create it in different regions, Canada, US, Europe, and then you start sending messages to it. And the cool thing about it is that it gets replicated between regions. So like you can have consumers in the States and consumers in Europe. So people who are interested in your system and what your system is doing can just subscribe to your Kafka topic and read the messages. And uh, and that's that was one of the solutions, like how we tackle this eligibility problem is like one way to make eligibility a bit more streamlined is to ask yourself the question, do we really need to go back to this huge data pipeline that runs once a day and takes up to 48 hours for the message to really transport to us and make sure that uh, this merchant is eligible, that merchant is not eligible? And the answer was no, because like when you take a look at the signals that we were really interested in, uh, do you have your store password protected or not? So that's a Boolean flag. Uh, have you enabled the payment, the payment gateway or not? That's another Boolean flag. Calculating chargeback rate. Chargeback rate is when you go, let's say, I don't know, to adidas.com, buy a pair of Adidas shoes, you get it, you don't like them, you, you charge back on your credit card, for example, and you return the product. When you charge back on your credit card, we get that because every merchant on the marketplace has the Shopify payments gateway. So we know when people charge back on their credit cards. So yeah, that, that has to be computed within like a certain time frame. So that stayed within the data pipeline. And we took all these other Boolean signals went back to their source systems and started lobbying people. It's like, hey, you're this team. Your system does the password protection thing. Can you please give me an event? Sometimes we found that event. Sometimes we didn't find it. And we just uh, paired with that team, introduced that new event. So every time they change something, we get like a change data capture, right. capture and, the event. And then you so would deal with it. Exactly. And we consume it. So that took 
eligibility down from 48 hours as like an end-to-end latency to come up with a solution, to come up with a, a conclusion, conclusion down to 32 seconds. Wow. Amazing. All right. So I have I have a lot of questions because I want to dive deeper into this and, and, and talk about some of the problems you might face with this, this event-driven architecture. So basically, just to summarize, you have a bunch of monoliths that are your four, five, six services, whatever the number is, uh, and they are integrated via Kafka. Uh, and basically, each service, when it wants to communicate something, it just emits a message. Uh, it goes into Kafka, and whoever needs that message can just pull it and subscribe to a topic and act on that message whenever that message becomes available. Now, the question becomes, what happens when you need, when you need a response from that other service as a response to the message that service A has emitted, for example? How do you deal with that? Uh, can you implement transactionality in an event-driven architecture? And if not, what's the alternative to this? Nice. Great question. So if you really need a response, it depends on like what you're going to do with that response. If you're trying to build a business process, most probably you'll build it using different APIs with like levels of redundancy in them. Like that's how, on a high level, that's how checkout at Shopify works. You, you, you have a lot of products, you try to check out. Uh, Shopify begins, let's say, the payment transaction. It prepares the payment service. The payment service says, yeah, I'm prepared, let's go. It submits the transaction. You're waiting, right? You're you're waiting for these like a few seconds on the checkout page. And once that dance between the payment gateway and the checkout service is done, uh, an order gets committed, confirmed, uh, uh, it's charged, and you either get a confirmation on the checkout or everything is rolled back. So that dance is done using mostly APIs. So if you need if you need a response and it's critical, you just go with the API REST APIs integration. or gRPC. Uh, no, they're, they're, they're Ruby APIs. Okay. And these Ruby APIs you're, were done mostly on GraphQL, so you're doing GraphQL okay. mutations. GraphQL, right. Right. And then the state is persisted on most probably a MySQL database. Interesting. Okay, so for certain types of problems, you actually rely on just GraphQL APIs to do certain mutations, and you block until you get your response, and then you act, you act on that. Cool. Um, Kafka and events. You mentioned geo-replication. Uh, how do you deal with, uh, you know, uh, replication latency? How do you deal with certain events being popping up somewhere, but not somewhere else due to replication lag uh, and, and all of these? How, how do you manage a geographically distributed Kafka landscape? Right. That's, um, that's deep. So I didn't work on the infrastructure team, but I knew about infrastructure a little bit. So I'll try to do my best. High level. So high level is uh, Shopify always had its own, uh, let's say, Kafka clusters on VMs. And when when they when we moved to the Google Cloud, which happened the last couple of years, uh, these VMs started running on Kubernetes as stateful sets and containers. So what usually happens is to replicate between geographical locations. It depends on the data and uh, and whether it has PIIs or not. Like you can imagine if you have a store in Europe, you won't be replicating orders and payment information over to the US. But what you what what you would see replic- get uh, get replicated is settings. For example, you go to your store and you enable or disable a payment gateway that gets sent over Kafka and replicated. For instance, and what happens is you just um, I think what what the architecture is is that there's a controller 
for like a, a Kafka topic, there's a controller for that. And that controller decides like which are the different brokers, uh, geographically speaking. Um, the main writer, or let's say the main primary node, that becomes the node for your topics. And then the other ones just get replicated as if they're on the same cluster in the US, but you treat also Europe as part of that. So replication is just hap- just happens as part of your, let's say Kafka cluster configuration. Right. But like, this is like the super high level Got it. And yeah. also because I think it's event-driven, then then replication lag is not that big of a deal because the services will only act when that event becomes available as opposed to, for example, pulling information uh, from a replicated, I don't know, database, for example, where if that information is not available in the, in the replica, then the pulling has to continuously keep on happening. And then there's a lot of nasty cases that could happen as a consequence of that. Some of which uh, I deal with or we deal with at GitHub hub uh, and one of our biggest at least in my opinion pain is using mysql <laughs> uh, do you have any thoughts on the usage of mysql in a high availability environment with with a lot of um you know replication uh requirements uh, do you feel that there are better relational databases that can do this um at scale better than mysql or do you think mysql is a fine option good question so I think uh, about replication, what you just mentioned is we we noticed, and we'll, we'll jump into MySQL because it's like related. What we noticed is Kafka is very fast at replicating data and publishing and subscribing and consuming from it. So what we saw the replication lag is in either MySQL itself or the Ruby consumers of Kafka. So basically Kafka doesn't care. Like we, we stress tested in one project, uh, publishing a billion events to Kafka. And it, and it happened in like a couple seconds. But like consuming the billion events from a Ruby consumer, even when you have multiple replicas of that consumer, it took forever almost because you're doing business logic and you're dealing with the Ruby runtime and that's an interpreted language. Yeah. So Kafka is not the problem. The problem is the technology consuming from it. So two, two things about MySQL. Um, what Shopify did to replicate MySQL is... There's like a, a baked solution within Shopify. It depends on the bin log, MySQL's um, logical, sorry, binary binary logical replication. So uh, any changes to, so databases that need replication, uh, a bin log would be uh, configured for them in terms of like, um, okay, so you're you're replicating your data over to Kafka because that's, that's essentially the problem. And what happens is there's a, it's called CDC pipelines and, the change data capture streams that changes from the MySQL database over to a Kafka message, a Kafka topic, and that Kafka topic has the same name of the table. So if you want to see what's happening on that table, you just subscribe to that Kafka, and the messages in that Kafka are Avro serialized, so they're binary serialized with their own schema. So you see the field names, and you see everything else. Uh, that may not always be possible because, again, PII data, so some tables may not have that. Uh, kind of replication. And regardless if there is PII data or not, due to also GDPR uh, compliance reasons, you may not always have the before change. So you'll always have the after change, for example. Interesting. So so with this with this setup, you could have like a primary, uh, you know, MySQL database, which you write to, and then that information gets replicated to like one or more replicas, I'm assuming. Correct. Um, and then your application or service is configured to read either from the replicas or fall back on the primary whenever the replicas are not really available. 
Yes, so that's the MySQL setup itself, like read replicas and a write primary. So if you want to read from MySQL, most probably you're going to hit a read replica. If you want to write to it, you'll go to the primary. And if your service, if your Py like Ruby service or Golang service is interested in what's, what's happening with that table, because maybe that's a configuration table, you don't have to hit an API. You just uh, uh, talk to, let's say, a Kafka topic. And the Kafka topic will have the data changes streamed from that table. Yeah. So th that brings a question to my mind. How do you deal with migrations and database schema changes? That must be like uh, a tricky thing to solve. Uh, or do you avoid it? Or do you bite uh, the pain and, and deal with it? How do you deal with it? That's a, that's a great question. So the solution differs based on the database you use at Shopify. So Shopify internally has Kate SQL. I think it's open source, probably. Uh, yeah, it looks like it. No, I don't know. So basically, Shopify has its own, let's say, Cloud SQL UCP alternative, which is cheaper. It's a MySQL VM with like a nice console. So that's a solution. Some teams, because of like you. Kate SQL does not give them, let's say, the scalability, uh, does not fulfill the scalability requirements. They go with Cloud SQL and GCP. And then some people go with Bigtable, especially if you're in data land, for example, you store things in Bigtable. So schema migrations are different. But let's say MySQL, what would happen is we, we run LHM, migration, LHM migrations. Um, migrations. Another, yeah, online schema migrations. That's a... That's an open source tool. And I think what it does is, so it's a zero downtime database migration. What it does is I think it, it elects a new primary. It locks the, the, the primary, migrates it, moves all traffic to primary, then migrates the other ones, and then does conflict resolution. Awesome. But I, I, I might be butchering how LHM works. But I think that's, <laughs> that's, that's okay. We got, we, we, got, we got the gist of it. One thing that's interesting to mention is like scaling MySQL, right? Which is always hard. So you can, uh, if you go down the route of microservices with MySQL at scale, it will be painful, in my opinion. So if you have a microservice approach, let's say you have a booking service, right? And you want to book apples, for example. And if, if all traffic from your systems to book apples goes through that microservice and that microservice is powered by MySQL, and then you have a you have booking, and then you have inventory services, and you're going with like the the by the book microservice architecture, and you're trying to do distributed transactions. That's like I think a short a short way to go to hell, probably. Like for you, you will be living in hell. So the what the Shopify way of doing things is they said, look, we don't want distributed transactions and distributed locking. What we're gonna do is we're gonna shard the whole architecture, pair shop. So as a store, if you go to production. There is something called the Shopify pod, and there are a lot of cool articles on the Shopify engineering blog about it. What happens is Shopify does not really shard the system by function, like microservices, but it shards them by shop and product and so on. So by tenant. So by tenant, exactly. So every Shopify merchant has a MySQL database, a Redis instance, and a memecached instance assigned to them, and a cron job, let's say a Ruby cron for them, a cron tab. What they share are the background workers and the list of Nginx load balances. But every tenant has their own, has, the, has their fully functioning Shopify. Like you would clone yeah, it's the like whole It's like a small ecosystem. scale unit, you know, it's which you replicate per, per, mar yeah. per merchant. Yeah. Exactly. And then that's called the Shopify pod. 
basically when you have like a, a small scale Shopify that's called, it's not a Kubernetes pod, it's a Shopify pod. And that Shopify pod could host one Shopify tenant or three or five or 10 like small ones. And as, as they start growing in size and resources, you'll start having this noisy, noisy neighbor problem. There are background services that just keep checking the resource uh, allocation and X patterns per shop. And when they see that a shop is becoming bigger, they just move it to its own pod and it keeps going from there. Let's explain the noisy, noisy neighbor problem a little bit. Yeah. The noisy neighbor problem. Let's assume that you have a, a one server and let's say 10 users on it. And they, they all use these 10, 10 users are using 10% of the resources. So you have 100% usage. But then one user starts growing a bit more. So they start needing 20%. So now your server has to allocate one 20% of work, let's say, using 100% of resources. And that starts affecting the other users because you're, you're chewing requests from them, you're chewing CPU, memory, disk usage. Yeah. And, and, you know, like services becoming lagging, uh, you start seeing latency problems or storage issues. So that's the noisy neighbor problem. So what you do is you take that noisy neighbor, that big user that just scaled, move it to its own VM. It's 20%. And now what you're left with is 90% VM, the original one. And people can use it, let's say freely. They have like some wiggle room in, in terms of resources. Is uh, each Shopify pod a VM all by its own or is it some other... Uh, or is it a combination of, of VMs, for example? Or Because my question is going to be, how do you guarantee isolation? So noisy neighbor could be on the resource consumption level, but there's also a security component to this where someone could break out of their pod, for example, in some way or another, and then they could you could jeopardize the data and information of another tenant. Right. So isolation is done at, at traffic and hosting level. So there is routing information about where every Shopify URL, which is like the store, is stored, right? So let's say uh, basim.io is stored on pod one. Uh, Ahmad.io is stored on pod two. So all traffic gets routed there, all writes, all reads. Not only that, but when uh, all writes and all reads, well, that's everything almost, right? Now you take front-end caching out of the picture. Front-end caching is cached with CDN all over, all over the world. So if you're accessing a web page, you're probably going to hit a cache on another server. So you only go to the server to store if you're going with APIs, basically, and data access and so on. And uh, traditionally, these were Shopify VMs, basically VMs on, before Google Cloud. They were like just a bunch of VMs, that big arrays of VMs all over the world in two primary locations, like Europe and the States. And what would happen is... Uh, in addition to the traffic routing, you would also have pod assignment, let's say. Like, where, where does the store live? Like, that's, that's your permanent place until you get moved, unless you get moved. When Shopify started moving to the cloud, where some of them were moved to VMs. It's like it was an ongoing process. Some of them were moved to Kubernetes. The end goal was to move them 100% to Kubernetes. So you can think of them as, like, namespaces. And within the namespaces, you have a pod, and the pod has a bunch of containers and that would be the specific merchant, let's say. All right, so you mentioned caching. So the front-end caching happens through CDNs, as you mentioned, which is great. And for folks who don't know, CDNs are content distribution networks. You could use your cloud provider for, for having a store like that. That's fine and easy. But what about database call caching, for example, if you're retrieving database information? So with your uh, pod setup, that is because you have a multi-tenant setup, 
you have a centralized caching solution, you have a cache per tenant. Uh, how do you deal with, with this problem? So that's a good question. So there is, there is a cache per tenant. So every, every pod has its own isolated cache because when you're going to hit that pod, you are hitting an entire store. So anything after that store, the store's products, the collections, images, everything, you besides like static assets, you're hitting that tenant's cache. Now with our marketplace solution, because we were not just we were not hosting the the tenants anymore. The tenants we just get from Shopify via APIs, and these tenants are hosted in their own pods. So now we've moved into a service integration on the on the apps. Let's say the mobile apps uh, side, and for that we cache uh, centrally for the marketplace, and we cache APIs essentially. So because we 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 use GraphQL for everything uh, on the mobile app and the backend, so it's easier to see. If you're hitting the same request or not, you're accessing the same GraphQL query with the same parameters essentially, and we and we just cache it for. It depends on the use case really, but it can it can be cached from five minutes all the way to thirty minutes. Brilliant. How did you find uh, so GraphQL? Were you using it only to expose APIs to internal clients or services, or also for external clients, as in browser and mobile app? Uh, you were using it all the way. Yes, indeed. So if you go to Shopify Dev, which is basically the, um, the development environment for Shopify, like you can, so, so Shopify has an app store, right? So you can develop apps for merchants. It's like WordPress plugins, but on steroids. And uh, you do that by using the Shopify development environment, the SDK plus the GraphQL API. So all the APIs there are GraphQL. Amazing. How did you find, how, how was your experience with GraphQL? I remember, like, not I remember, at GitHub, uh, we used GraphQL internally, but then we decided that we don't want to maintain it internally and relied on, on something else, but we still maintain the public GraphQL APIs. How's your experience with GraphQL for in-service communication? Let's put it that way. So it was my first experience developing GraphQL APIs on scale. Before that, it was like in smaller startups, so you can pick and choose like, oh, this is a REST API, that's a GraphQL API. But when you go all the way, you start seeing the limitations of the technology. One of them is like uh, boilerplating. So if you're gonna roll out your own GraphQL, another GraphQL API or a GraphQL controller, you have to do a lot of, a lot of the same work almost. Uh, like Ruby allows you to do like, uh, extending your class with different other classes to get authorization authentication but still the access patterns are going to be almost the same it's either a query or a mutation and uh, uh, shopify's philosophy of developing graphql apis is that everything is on the back end so you can you can customize your query on the front end but everything will be sorry implemented on the back end so there's no dynamic query parsing all the queries are already uh, implemented and uh, you, we generate an SDK, a schema for the front end, and that's how we use it, essentially. So it's like a, a very strict open AI specification for a RESTful API. Sounds good. I, I like that. And I like the idea of being able to generate clients based on the specification you have. And then the other application that needs to integrate or call these APIs simply integrates through the client, which makes everything much more streamlined. But then comes the problem of 
versioning and making sure that you have the client that is relevant and up to date, so on and so forth. So, so how, how do you deal with that? Do you package your clients and, and publish them in an internal package registry of sorts and then people pull the, the version they need? And then how do you deal with deprecating certain APIs, for example, or documentation or all of these things that come with, with, with this approach? Awesome. So every breaking change to an API has to have an, a new, so we use semantic versioning, essentially. So if it's a small uh, patch, there's, that's a minor version. There's, there's a min, minor, micro, and then major. If it's a breaking change, that's a major version. And it goes through a release cycle. Um, if the API you're deprecating is used, uh, let's say, by the mobile app, like Marketplace, it has one year deprecation cycle. Uh, if it's not, it inter-service communication. Inter-services, we use the latest, un which is like um, unversioned version of the API. So that's like cutting edge. Uh, any change you do to the API gets versioned twice. So the semantic version plus the unversioned one. So that's like the latest cutting edge. And services just use the unversioned one. Most of oh, interesting. I, I, can't, I can't generalize. Is it a nightly build? No, if, if, uh, if I change the API now, and I release the API, the GraphQL API, it's part of the unversion version. Like let's call it, let's say cutting edge version. But doesn't that break things? Like let's say I'm, I'm relying on one of your APIs, you break it and I'm pulling your unversioned uh, client and I'm using it internally. Um, doesn't that cause problems on my end? True, which is, which is a problem that you have a free fix for when you use monoliths is once you change your own API and everything is a monolith, including the mobile apps backend, tests are going to break and you either refactor them or you request changes from other teams. Love it. I, I, for people listening in, this is why people stick to monoliths. With monoliths. Yeah, yes. it's just much, much easier than having to deal with all of these problems. Uh, because yeah. with, with, with services in general and microservices to be more specific, Problems like this, they amplify exponentially. Indeed. Uh, you, the, the, the amount of time you need to maintain these versions, incompatibilities, so on and so forth, mushrooms in size. And then what's <laughs> worse is if you don't want to deal with that, then you have to guarantee backward compatibility for years to come. True. And that also halts your progress and your ability to make faster changes. Right. And just for like intellectual transparency, let's say, so Shopify core, like the core organization, which builds the platform, goes through a release, a rigorous release cycle of GraphQL APIs, right? And then clients, public clients have, like they can't use the unversioned version, like publicly outside Shopify. Um, they have to use a, a specific version, right? So that's the, the outside world. The inside world is you get to pick and choose. You choose a version or you choose the unversioned one. So that's your choice as a developer. So in the marketplace, we always integrated with the core APIs unversioned. When they get released, we immediately know. And I think you can you can call it like an organizational hack rather than having meetings and discussing release notes. Your tests are gonna break. Yeah, essentially. Love it. But that also requires a lot of discipline around around testing. So True. let's talk about testing <laughs> since we're already there. Um, unit tests, integration tests, end-to-end -end tests. What's your flavor? What's your poison? All of them. <laughs> to what extent? <laughs> to what extent? Um, how do you make the decision how far you want to go, right? Uh, 
True. Uh, I, I see I see a lot of organizations fight over coverage, which in my opinion is complete bullshit. Uh, I see a lot of opinion, a lot of organizations, they are like the Wild West, uh, which is pretty inconsistent across different services. Some services are very well tested, some services are not. And some of the services that really need testing don't have it. Um, so how far do you go towards implementing a culture of testing? Right. Automated think, testing. Right. Yeah. I think some, uh, some, communi- some open source communities have it better than others, I think. Uh, Ruby on Rails, like Rails basically advertised and almost like uh, indoctrinated people into writing tests, which I think is is good. Like you get like if you have a, a Ruby on Rails developer, they've read a book, they've been working a couple months with it, they know that they have to write tests if they're working with a Ruby team or a Rails team, let's say. So that 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 was that was easy. Uh, before Ruby on Rails, I came from a Python shop which is like the company at Trust You a few companies ago. And I was the first one to introduce testing, which was crazy. And it was a big, big challenge to introduce testing. And like one of the common pushbacks you get from people is like, aren't you wasting time with like testing? Uh, I kept like pushing for it. I was adamant about it. And then at some point, I we my team built an API integration platform with Booking.com and TripAdvisor. It's like hospitality stuff creating hotels and exchanging reservations. And we reached a point where we did not do a single user acceptance test for our API. Everything, like we had almost 80 something percent unit test coverage and we had end-to-end tests for our APIs based on open, AI, open API specifications, all, all automated using Python. If we change the schema, we know the tests, if the tests pass, they're going to pass for our clients. And we'd had like zero incidents with that. So I think my, what's my take on tests? Um, do all of them. Like people can be, people can push a lot of tests that are meaningless. I agree, and there is really no easy cut answer for this. I think that it's more art than science. And I think you get, you yeah, you you get like a good amount of tests from asking other people if they think they're confident shipping this code just by looking at the tests. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's 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 the razor's the Occam's razor. Uh, you know, are you confident shipping this with the amount of tests you have right now, or do you feel there are scenarios that might break that are not covered by tests? And if that's the case, you should implement the tests. Uh, not coverage, not ninety percent, not eighty percent. This metric is a vanity metric, and it means absolutely nothing. True. Uh, what matters is your confidence level, and I, I really like this. All right. So a lot of people complain that tests require or add a ton of maintenance. So we implement them, great. Then we wanna make a change. We have a lot of rewriting to do or a lot of changing to do. Sometimes also it makes refactoring even harder. What's your philosophy around the complexity of the tests? Because a lot of people preach that tests should not be totally, um, or at least the TDD folks, uh, test-driven development folks preach that unit tests should not be coupled with the implementation details. They should test for certain scenarios and certain cases, but they don't necessarily need to be aware of how you implemented a certain function or uh, a method or whatever. What are your thoughts on this? How do you approach unit testing? What's the level of complexity? When do you know that this unit test needs to become an integration test, for example? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot and um, I don't know, I don't have... um... A single answer. Like some cases, I think tests should know about the implementation detail, especially if you're 
especially if you're like testing a specific way of doing things, like database access patterns, for example. I don't want any implementation to pass because maybe, maybe for example, I'm building a Kafka consumer, and this Kafka consumer is going to consume messages that get published over Kafka in a burst, a spike, billion events. So that consume, if that consumer just stores things in the database, and that's the test, that's that's all fun and dandy. But what if your implementation has thirteen database queries instead of three, for example? Both are implementations, right? But one is like both of them are also different, and both of them are going to mean differently when you when you ship them to production. So, but at the same time, I can't really generalize this rule. Like, it's testing is really hard. Testing is like again the age old question of quality. What is good quality, right? So, I think. Um, if I'm going to say, let's assume, let's say this, rather than coming up with rules, how about we come up with guiding principles, right? Um, a test should, let's say, test for the input-output, right? If I give you this input, you give me that output. If there's a side effect, like you're touching another API or a database, I should also be testing for the side effects that they're happening in a certain way. Let's, let's say that. So if your function is pure, I just give you an array and you return a dictionary, whatever. That's easy. But if your function goes to an API, a unit test would mock that API, but, an, but there should be an integration test to make sure that if the API fails, that I can handle that failure because that's another branch, right? If I go to the database, what if the database is away? What if the database is down? What if it's going through a replication lag? Does it hit another read replica? Do I queue rights? Do the rights get queued? Like there are all like first, second, third order effects that happen when you have side effects. And I don't like rules because like there's always exceptions. So about, what about guiding principles? I think uh, the conversation around tests could be a bit less religious. Dogmatic, yeah. Dogmatic, exactly. And a, a bit more flexible. That's the problem, 100%. That's the problem. The other day, uh, someone uh, came in and wrote a comment on one of my TikToks. They're like, you always talk about software engineering in a very heuristic form. Uh, you never give, you know, very specific uh, details. Uh, you never talk about very specific scenarios and how to do things. And then they asked for my GitHub profile. I shared it, shared it with them in the comment uh, with a very open spirit. And they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You have no hard skills. So obviously you talk about software engineering with a, from a heuristic form because you don't have the skills to talk about the technical implementation details. And I sat down thinking about this, this comment and tried to figure out where is it really coming from? You know, uh, Why are people so adamant about them being fed a specific recipe for doing yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about fucking mental models. I want to talk about how you could reason about software engineering. I don't want to teach recipes. That's not my business. And I'm not in that in that area, you know, to tell people how to do it because it's an art. You don't teach art, right? You teach some techniques, which is fine. Everybody in software engineering should learn some of the fundamental techniques, learn how to do unit testing. That's great. But how far do you take unit testing? That's the art. Mm -hmm. That comes with experience. I'd rather talk about mental models just like you did right now, which is fantastic, guiding principles, as opposed to do this, get to this metric, do that, get to this point, which is complete and utter bullshit. Yeah. 
And I can understand that junior engineers want this formulaic approach to software engineering because they feel lost or they need to create like a sort of a paved path for themselves to be able to go to the next step. They want milestones, so on and so forth. But my friends, this doesn't come easy. This is why this craft is difficult because of all of the uncertainty that comes with it, because of the complexity of the variables that we have to deal with. And the sooner you learn how to deal with uh, the uncertainty, the better engineers you will become. Indeed. I'm pretty sure you, Ahmad, myself included, we are very comfortable with not knowing everything. We yeah. have got, gotten to a point where we have dealt with so many problems, so many systems, so many whatever, that we are we understand that there will be problems that we, first of all, cannot think about. There will be problems that we can never anticipate. There will be problems that we never can design for. So we will do our best and that we have to be adaptive enough to tackle the uncertainty that will inevitably come and we have to deal with. Yeah. Sorry, this went on a small rant, but I just wanted to make this idea pretty clear for everybody. I agree with everything you said. And I think um, I think that it, it, it essentially boils down to uncertainty. And I think like um, I think what doesn't get talked about, and this is something that I think being, becoming an engineering manager might help an engineer, is like uh, trying to see the social aspect of the craft. You know, like programming is as mathematical and logical as it is a social endeavor right like if you're gonna do if you're gonna build any system worth building and worth consuming by other people you're gonna build it with other people too um the the reason pair programming uh is good once you get once you like anything in in your life if you're gonna pick it for the first time it's gonna suck and you're gonna hate it but once you make it work you're gonna love it and the reason you're gonna love it is it makes everything faster because it's a social endeavor, not just because it's just because it's social, because there are so many benefits of like trying to tweak how systems build from a social perspective, like a faster learning curve. You get early feedback on your thought processes and engineer from another engineer. It makes uh, pull requests and code reviews faster. It makes you identify bottlenecks or essential, let's say, dragons, caves in the code much earlier. Uh, all of these things are social, and I think uh, I think complexity is one of them, right? Like uh, you you don't have to learn you don't have to know everything because not everything is relevant. You just know you just have to know about the risks, and the risks are a small subset of everything you're uncertain of. Here's my mental model about software engineering. After spending more than fifteen years writing code in all sorts of ways, shapes, or form, it's a fundamentally an optimization problem, right? We have to converge on either a local maxima or maximum or you know a global maximum. People who don't understand what an optimization problem is, people who don't understand the uh, gradient descent algorithm will not understand this analogy. But software engineering is pretty much fundamentally this. Uh, the more experience we have, the faster we can converge on the appropriate solution. The faster we can direct ourselves and nod- nudge ourselves in the in the direction that will get us to that local maxima or maximum or that global maximum, right? The only time when we can hit that point or uh, we can hit that maximum from a single try is when we are redoing something exactly the same way as we did before. And 
these cases or these scenarios are very rare and very far in between. And even with these cases, there will be variables that are gonna make the problem, the optimization problem, different than the one we've seen before. So if we approach software engineering as we are trying to converge towards a solution, we don't know what is the right path. We just have to keep on iterating, nudge ourselves in different directions until we get to that you know, solution that will work. And then we have to keep on iterating on that solution to get from the local maximum to the global maximum. And I would really wish people would understand this analogy because then it just sort of unpacks everything we keep on talking about in this field. Yeah, 100%. It's like uh, you, sh you shouldn't strive to get it right the first time. You should like adopt a more uh, heuristic, evolutionary approach to it, like going from one local maxima, like closer to global maxima. Like if you hit it the first time, it's awesome. But like, don't get frustrated if you don't know the path there. And this, like, it's getting very wishy-washy. But I think it it is wishy-washy because essentially you're most probably like as you as you as you develop as an engineer and you start taking on more technical leadership, you're gonna get handed problems that are unshaped yet, right? Like the way I think about it is, like, imagine it in different levels, right? Like you have the internal, the junior engineer. And they get handed a very well-defined task. Do this for that reason. And this is the outcome. And you get to a mid-level engineer and they require less hand-holding. Then you get to a senior engineer and that's a big deal. So these are your subject matter experts in the team, right? And they, they, they possibly could shape up work for other engineers, but the PM has already done the shaping. Now, as you get like tech lead or staff and above, you get involved with the same conversation the same time that a product manager or a product lead gets like hears about it for the first time. Right. And they say, build us an Amazon Prime competition. Yeah. So what? We need an MVP by next Friday. <laughs> no pressure. So it's like, yeah. how do you it's like how where do you start? Right? Like have you have you worked at Amazon Prime? I haven't, but you might get asked that question. That's a completely valid one. And I think it's like a ladder of abstraction or like a ladder of uncertainty. The, the problem begins as an idea with like some thought or business leader or like a, they see a signal in the market that there's a gap and they say, let's, let's put a product offering in that gap. And then it gets to the product leads and the staff, devs, or the principals. And then from there, it gets shaped up into different teams and then different teams scheduled into different sprints. And then the junior engineer knows about this really cool buy with prime button like in the app but like as you as you become better as an engineer you will be exposed to more uncertainty because that's i mean that's Absolutely. the nature of every problem 100 and and the thing is nobody knows nobody knows with 100 certainty any outcome because if they did um they, we would be tackling things way way differently there, there is always a hypothesis. Every product manager, every CEO, every business owner knows that there's a hypothesis and it requires trial and error. And this is something that took me, for example, a while to really develop this, this model. And that's why I always preach to software engineers that they need to understand how the business works if they are working as professional engineers. If you want to go and, I don't know, as, as um, what's his name, the creator of C++ uh, talked about in a video. Or, yeah. Bjorn, exactly. If if you wanna if you wanna just 
write code, go play Sudoku because you know it's, it's <laughs> don't be a professional software engineer. Do it as a hobby, do it for fun. But if you want to be a professional software engineer, you have to understand how businesses work, at least if you're ambitious and you want to grow. Otherwise, you can just stay in the lower levels and keep on churning code, get all of the certainty uh, and everything will be unpacked for you in small tasks. And then you can just keep on churning tickets and closing them and implementing small things. But if you want to deal with the big problems, you have to learn how to deal with this uncertainty. Nobody knows the answer. There's always hypotheses. We test, we try, we get feedback. We go back to the drawing board, we re-implement. That's it. That's how it should go. Right. A hundred percent. And, uh, I like that our conversation has like uh, touched on Occam's razor, the scientific method, coming up with hypotheses, testing them, evolutionary process of discovering things. And it, it made me, like I just looked it up. Uh, do you know Wit But Why, the blog? No, I'm not, not familiar it, with it. It's, it's, a really, it's a really cool blog by a guy called uh, Tim Urban. And he's a, he has an article called uh, The Cook and the Chef, which like sums up everything <laughs> we talked about, right? Like I think... Uh, I love it. Like, like some engineers are like cooks. They would like to be handed a recipe. And some engineers are like chefs. It's like exactly. you give them raw materials and they come up with stuff. But That's it doesn't it. apply just to engineers because he was like talking about Musk. Like regardless of you, like your speakers, regardless if you like Musk or not or agree with him or not, right? Just go ahead and read that article. I think it's, it's awesome. Love the it. Cook. The cook and the chef. Absolutely, I always use. I always like because I always use the analogy of recipes because one hundred percent I agree with this with this way of thinking, um, and maybe we need this. Maybe if everybody's a chef, we wouldn't be able to move forward. Uh, maybe, but again, when we when we create content for folks, we want them to reach their maximum potential. We don't create content so that people stay in their bubbles, right? And then if you want to reach that maximum potential, you consume, you try to consume this content. If you want to stay in your bubble, <laughs> move along. That's totally fine. It's, there's nothing wrong or right in any of this, right? Uh, but when we talk about mental models, ways of working, so on and so forth, it's to enrich your experience so that you can get to that next level. And I, I, I know it's difficult because sometimes when we talk about things from a high-level perspective, it flies over somebody's head. Because to understand this mental model, it requires a certain buildup of experiences for this model to click and for it to make sense. Otherwise, it's just going to be like, a, okay, what does this actually mean? Um, and and it's, it's understandable. So sometimes we try to break it down with examples, but sometimes it's really impossible and it has to stay in its abstract form because that's the purest way you can communicate the idea without really stripping it away from its essence. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. 100%. Amazing. Ahmad, this has been an awesome conversation. I would probably go on for hours. <laughs> Maybe we should do this again and uh, keep on debating or talking about the other uh, aspects of software engineering that are less tangible, let's say. Yeah. Because I think that would be an interesting conversation. They call them soft skills, but I think they are harder than the hard skills themselves. Absolutely. So the funny thing is I was talking to Simon Willison. He's the co-creator of Django. And we, the way we wrapped up the first episode of the season was by him giving advice about what would make software engineers better. And he talked about soft skills. And then he mentioned that he hates this term, soft skills, because there's nothing soft about them. And uh, I think we both agree, or we all of us, we agree that it's probably better to 
maybe share, uh, call it professional skills. That's a term I, I would much rather use than soft skills because these are the hard skills. This is what I see with my colleagues every day, the stuff that they are fighting with for them to grow and to have more impact and for them to get to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's, and these are the skills that, I mean, you can read about them, but uh, probably I think the best way to learn them is from building things with other people. And um, I think I, I read somewhere, it, it just reminded me of a random quote by Werner, Werner Vogels, the CTO of AWS, and he says, uh, there is no compression algorithm for experience. And I think 100% uh, true. Like uh, uh, you, you just have to go through go through these examples and these similar stories to, to learn these skills. Absolutely. You see, this is, this is one of the things. There's no, there's no compression algorithm for experience. If you tweet this, it will literally fly over the heads of so many people. You know, it just takes so much to just understand what, what this small set of words uh, actually represents and it means. Ahmad, I love this. Any last advice for whoever is listening to us? Oof, you put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> Anything you want to share with them? Like, uh, just, just adopt a more, be more flexible in, in the way you design software. Uh, adopt it as an incremental approach. I think a lot of problems could be avoided. Premature optimization is happens because people don't adopt incremental approaches. Uh, shipping, just try to ship it. If it breaks, you'll fix it. No worries. Um, you miss one hundred percent of the chances you don't attempt. So just like keep shipping and incrementally improve them. You don't have to get it right the first time. Love it. That's a great way to wrap up this episode. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening, and thank you, Ahmad, for joining me. Thanks a lot for having me, Basim.